impacting any organ, but the organ that we become most concerned about is when it starts impacting your brain. Extreme heat is endangering people across the U.S. and all around the world. For Saturday, July 15th, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. The last two times the state of Alabama tried to execute someone using lethal injection, it failed. He called me the night of his attempted execution. I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone in the course of my reporting who was so shaken. What keeps going wrong? And as the state prepares to try that method again, what's at stake? And this week, mom, dad, Bingo and Bluey are all back for a new season. We'll talk to parents about what makes the Australian cartoon so special. It's taught me to really just play along and just tap into my childlike innocence and sense of wonder. First News. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. In Georgia, police are searching for a gunman who allegedly opened fire at four different locations in the small community of Hampton, south of Atlanta, killing four people. Police say they are searching for Andre Langmore, who is a resident of Hampton. Henry County Sheriff Reginald Scandret says it's an all-hands-on-deck effort to find him. I'm going to set this directly to you, Mr. Longmore, wherever you are. We will hunt you down in any hole that you may be residing in and bring you to custody, period. Officials say they have four murder warrants for Langmore, and they say they don't know if he's related to the victims who are all adults. There is a $10,000 reward for information leading to his arrest and prosecution. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was rushed to the emergency room earlier today, suffering from dehydration, That's according to his office. He will remain in the hospital overnight for observation and additional tests. From Jerusalem, Natan Odenheimer has more. Hours after Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was admitted to the hospital, he published a short video of himself smiling saying he feels well. However, he is expected to remain hospitalized overnight under the supervision of two cardiologists in a cabinet meeting planned for Sunday morning is postponed. At the age of 73, Netanyahu is the oldest member of the Israeli parliament and the longest-serving prime minister. He has not designated anyone to assume his role as prime minister in the event that he becomes unable to fulfill his duties. For NPR News, I'm Nathan Odenheimer in Jerusalem. Record-breaking heat is expected in many parts of the country this weekend, particularly in the West. The National Weather Service has issued excessive heat warnings and heat advisories for parts of several states. And as NPR's Kirk Sigler reports, forecasters are warning that a prolonged heat dome could stay put through next week from Arizona to Idaho. Extreme heat advisories are in effect this weekend in Arizona, California, and Idaho and Utah, where temperatures could hit 105 or higher around Boise and Salt Lake City. In some deserts, the overnight lows may barely dip below 100. All of this follows a record-breaking June for heat worldwide, and earlier this month, the record was broken for the hottest ever global average temperature. Scientists warn these excessive heat waves are far more common now with human-caused climate change, especially the so-called heat domes afflicting Texas and Arizona. As one UCLA climate scientist put it this past week, the extent of these heat waves should be rare, but we're seeing what should be one in 100-year or even one in 1,000-year events happening now more and more. Kirk Sigler, NPR News, Boise. This is NPR.
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy in Boston. The state is trying another way to address the emergency housing crisis. It's recruiting people who are willing to host families in need of shelter until longer-term accommodations can be made. The state is being inundated by families looking for help, including many newly arrived immigrant families. Salvation Army volunteers from Massachusetts are in central Vermont helping people recover from this week's historic flooding. Major Keith Jakey says the helpers split into two groups. One went door-to-door, checking some of the hard-hit areas, making sure they needed water, clean-up kits, and meals. And then another one went to Montpelier to a, uh, a housing project. President Biden has approved Governor Phil Scott's request for a major disaster declaration. Scientists who study sharks are raising awareness about the importance of ocean predators. New England aquarium scientist John Chisholm has been studying sharks for four decades. He says sharks are more prevalent where their seal population has grown because they feed on the marine mammals. Chisholm reminds ocean swimmers that they need to be aware of their surroundings. Be shark smart, as we like to say. Avoid swimming with the bait. Don't go in the water if there's seals or big schools of fish. You know, stay close to shore. Don't swim alone. Don't make a lot of unnecessary splashing that may attract any shark that's in the area. Chisholm says a few dozen sharks have been spotted near Cape Cod since June. Amherst College is asking people in Massachusetts to help them research the state's bear population. Thea Christensen is coordinating that effort. As we get more data from folks, especially those with a fixed trail camera, we can um, do things like thinking about behaviors of animals, how are they behaving in different parts of their range. We can think about where they're distributed. Christensen does recommend that people make sure there are no food sources on their property, such as dog food, bird feeders, or open cans of garbage. A chance of showers tonight. Shower is likely tomorrow. Low 70s tonight, low 80s tomorrow. It's 84 degrees at 506. This is 90.9 WBUR. Stay with us for All Things Considered. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR produce programming that meets the highest standards of public service in journalism and cultural expression. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Roughly one in three Americans is living under an extreme heat advisory or warning today. A heat dome is responsible for consecutive days of record triple-digit temps. Red alert Testing warnings, the meaning there's a threat to life, have been issued uh, for 10 cities, including have Florence. Have you ever seen the weather maps look orange and red and yellow and purple? And magenta, there you go. I've never seen anything like that. It just really does feel like an air full of blow dryer is just going back in your face. It's not just the U.S. Life-threatening temperatures are hitting around the globe. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu was hospitalized today for dehydration. It's also not just the heat. Recent extreme weather includes devastating flooding in New England, which we'll hear about in a few minutes. First, though, we're going to focus on the high temperatures. And to do that, we're joined by Nathan Rott from NPR's Climate Desk. Hey, Nate. Hey, good afternoon. Let's start with these searing temperatures. Where are we talking about here? So, Scott, if you threw a dart at the top half of the globe, uh, you'd likely hit a spot. Mm. I'm kind of joking, but sadly not by a whole lot. You know, Spain, France, Germany, Poland, much of Europe is under extreme heat advisories. Temperatures were so hot yesterday in Greece that they actually closed access to the Acropolis to try to protect visitors. Excessive heat is either happening or expected across northern Africa, the Middle East, parts of China are experiencing an extended heat wave. 
Uh, and then, of course, there's the heat that's broiling California, the American Southwest, and the southeastern part of the U.S. I mean, anecdotally, it just seems miserable and possibly dangerous in so many places. But to try and get a sense of it, how bad are we talking about here in the U.S.? Yeah, it's real bad. Uh, on Friday, yesterday, you know, more than 93 million people were wow. under excessive heat advisories and warnings, according to the National Weather Service. Temperatures in parts of the southwest are expected to top 120 degrees Fahrenheit this weekend. There's even a chance, if forecasts are accurate, that Death Valley, which currently holds the record for the hottest air temperature ever recorded on the planet Earth at 134 degrees, could see that record matched or broken. Wow. I mean, just how dangerous is this? It's extremely dangerous, you know, for people and wildlife. A study published last week estimates that more than 61,000 people died during heat waves in Europe last year. And we're looking at similar temperatures there right now. In the U.S., you know, public health officials are warning people to limit activity outdoors and to check up on neighbors, especially elderly people, folks with pre-existing conditions, uh, and people that live in low-income areas who might not have access to A.C. or to even shade. Here's the director of California's Department of Public Health, Dr. Tomas Aragon, at a press briefing yesterday. The symptoms that we become more concerned about is when your internal core temperature starts becoming elevated. So you may develop a fever. It could be impacting any organ, but the organ that we become most concerned about is when it starts impacting your brain. So that's when a person's judgment could be compromised. So they might not even recognize that they're in a dangerous situation and take the steps they need to to cool down. I should add here, too, Scott, that public health officials warn this applies to everyone. You know, California looked at deaths associated with a heat wave in the state last year and found that many of the people who died were younger Latinos who were working outdoors mm. or even physically fit people who just did their regular exercise routines, like going for hikes or runs. That's a good point, because I feel like when I hear these warnings, your mind just kind of assumes this mostly applies to the elderly or people with broader conditions. But you're saying that is not the case here. I mean... Look, it's summer. It's hot in the summer. It's always hot in the summer in the Southwest, especially where we're focusing in on here. But there are so many signs that this is something broader. Why are we seeing so much widespread heat right now? So two reasons, Scott. You know, one is El Nino, which is a naturally occurring phenomena where ocean temperatures are hotter in the Pacific, which causes hotter temperatures around the world. That started this year. and means we'll likely be looking at soaring temperatures again next summer. But the other major driver here, of course, is human activities. We are warming the planet by burning fossil fuels and adding more greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere. Scott, I like to think of greenhouse gas emissions like carbon dioxide, you know, the stuff we spew from our tailpipes, as kind of like down in a blanket or coat. It insulates the planet, capturing heat. Hmm. And given all of that, how much have temperatures already risen? So average temperatures on the planet have already increased nearly two degrees Fahrenheit since the start of the Industrial Revolution, which is when we really started adding CO2 into the atmosphere. Uh, and when average temperatures go up, the highs become higher, as we're seeing right now. The last eight years were the hottest years on record for the planet. Preliminary data shows that the first week of this month of July was the hottest the world has seen in thousands, if not tens of thousands of years. Wow. And all of these superlatives that we're talking about, Scott, these records are expected to continue to be broken as we continue to release more fossil fuel emissions into the atmosphere. That's NPR's Nate Rott. Thanks. Yeah, thank you, Scott. Check up on your neighbors this weekend. Will do. It's not just heat. Torrential rain caused massive flooding in Vermont this week. 
It caused catastrophic damage, and now all that rain is making its way down the swollen and flooding Connecticut River and taking out farms along the way. As Connecticut Public Radio's Patrick Scahill reports, the timing couldn't have been worse. Farmers were just days away from the harvest when the floodwaters began to rise and wipe out their crops. The flood came just days before Tony Botticello was going to start picking his corn. We haven't picked an ear yet, and it's, it's gone. What am I going to do? He's farmed on the banks of the Connecticut River since the 1980s. It's some of the Northeast's most fertile farmland. Botticello points to a path submerged in water. We can't get in, so he pulls up a drone video on his phone. His hands shake as we see hundreds of acres gone, orderly green rows of crops blending into brown water. This was a field of pumpkins that's all gone. Over on the other side of that tree is, that was a haylot right there. That's gone, all underwater. The river began flooding on Tuesday and continued to rise during the week. Heavy rains in Vermont sent entire trees, boulders, and even vehicles flowing south through Connecticut. It's dirty water, and when that water touches crops, people can't eat that food. If it touches the, the ears at all, it's gone. It's, the bacteria in there is just disgusting. It's sewage, you know. On the other side of the river, Francis Whalen stands before a path. It leads to his fields of corn and hay. It's about a mile inland, and the water is right at our shoes. This is going to take weeks to go down, to even get in there to see how much damage is there. Nothing, I think, is salvageable anyhow at this point. He says when farmers heard the water was coming, they moved fast to save tractors and other valuable gear. So on Monday, we all started. It was like a mass evacuation of farm machinery. Something you never see. And it was uh, very stressful for the farmers. Brian Hurlbert is commissioner of the State Department of Agriculture. He says farmers all over the region have spent weeks dumping seed and sweat into the ground. All of your expenses are accruing till you know just a couple weeks ago before you can actually start making money. A flood event like this wipes out all of that work. Hurlbert toured the damage. He estimates 2,000 acres of farms were underwater at one point. These are the kind of situation where farmers lose farms. Suresh Gamire is an extension educator and vegetable specialist at the University of Connecticut. He travels around the state helping farmers. He says they're used to Mother Nature being an agent of chaos. But this year, the extremes has been very problematic. A late May frost wiped out crops of peaches, apples, and strawberries. Then Canadian wildfires blanketed the region in smoke, making it so some farmers couldn't even go outside to work. The costs of all these events are still unclear. Even before the flood, federal officials say the country had already seen a dozen climate disasters this year. Each cost more than $1 billion in losses. See, that's, that's, the, <laughs> that's the thing about farmers. Back at Tony Botticello's farm, he looks out at the flooded field. Even after insurance payments, he estimates he'll still lose hundreds of thousands of dollars on this year's crops. For farmers like him across the region, it's not a total loss, but a significant setback. Still, he's thinking ahead. My dad used to say, if you want to gamble, don't go to a casino. Put all your money in the ground, see if it grows. After all, he says, he's a Red Sox fan. There's always next year. For NPR News, I'm Patrick Scahill in Hartford. An ornery otter has been hassling local surfers and kayakers at a popular beach in Santa Cruz, California. NPR's Dustin Jones says its behavior has officials concerned. The otter, known as Otter 841, is a five-year-old female that has been approaching people in the water over the past month. She's been seen confronting surfers as they wait for waves. 
Mark Woodward is a local photographer, born and raised in Santa Cruz. He says he spent over 40 years snapping pictures, but has never seen anything like this. I have seen the otter approach a group of surfers, and it goes from board to board, sampling the different surfboards until it finds one it likes. He even saw the otter catch a wave on someone's board once. But some of the otter's interactions were alarming, like the time it booted a surfer and chewed up his board. One case, there was actually quite a battle over the surfboard as the surfer was trying to get it back from the otter. Kevin Connor is a spokesperson for the Monterey Bay Aquarium, where the otter was born. He says the otter was successfully released into the wild three years ago, but her behavior towards humans will likely land her back in captivity. This behavior is not helpful for this otter being in the wild. In the long run, it could be hazardous for people. Aquarium staff teamed up with state and federal fish and wildlife officials to catch the otter. She'll be brought to the aquarium for a health evaluation, and then will more than likely live out the rest of her days in an aquarium or zoo. The southern sea otter is an endangered species, having been hunted for their fur in the 17 and 1800s. They're believed to have been wiped out until 1938, when a family of 50 otters was found in Big Sur. Those same otters were used to help bring the species back from the brink of extinction. Today, there are approximately 3,000 southern sea otters in the wild only 30% of what scientists believe their original population was, and they only occupy a portion of the California coast. From Año Nuevo, just north of Santa Cruz, to Santa Barbara in the south, that's the only place where you can find southern sea otters in the wild in California. Officials don't know for certain why Otter 841 has behaved this way, but Connor says it could be because of people interacting with the otter, maybe even feeding it, which is why fish and wildlife and aquarium staff urge people to admire wildlife from a distance for the safety of people and the animals themselves. Dustin Jones, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thanks for listening to All Things Considered on 90.9 WBUR. I'm Susan Levy. Join us at 6 for the Moth Radio Hour. Want some new summer reads on us? Sign up for WBUR's Beach Books newsletter in the month of July, and you could win a $30 gift card to Beacon Hill Books. We're picking from our subscribers each week, so sign up for Beach Books at WBUR.org slash Beach And from the beach or at the park, on a walk or at your desk, the WBUR app makes it so easy to tap and listen wherever the summer takes you. Listen live and catch up on anything that you might have missed. Download the WBUR app today. 86 degrees at 518, a chance of showers tonight, showers likely tomorrow. Low 70s tonight, low 80s tomorrow. WBUR supporters include the Cape Playhouse and Dennis Village. Now playing Tony Award-winning musical Jersey Boys, the story of Frankie Valley and the Four Seasons. Tickets at capeplayhouse.com. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. In Georgia, police are searching for a gunman who allegedly opened fire in a small town south of Atlanta this morning, leaving at least four people dead. So far, there's no word on a motive. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has been hospitalized after feeling dizzy today and is undergoing tests for apparent dehydration. In a statement, the 73-year-old says he was out in the sun yesterday without a hat or water, but says he feels good now. His doctors say he will be hospitalized overnight 
overnight for additional tests. And the Reverend Jesse Jackson has stepped down as president of the Rainbow Push Coalition, the Chicago-based civil rights group he founded more than 50 years ago. The 81-year-old has battled health problems in recent years. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. From Carla Itzkovich, whose gift in memory of Moises Itzkovich, founder of the Moises Itzkovich Foundation, helps provide public radio news and information to communities around the world. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Elizabeth Brunig says she has never done an interview like the one she did last year. He called me the night of his attempted execution. And, you know, I don't think I've ever spoken to anyone in the course of my reporting who was so shaken. It was last November. Alabama officials had just tried to execute Kenneth Smith, who 34 years earlier had been convicted in the murder for hire of Elizabeth Senate. They had tried to execute him, but they had failed. They sat him down in the prison office and allowed him to make a phone call to his wife, and he asked her to three-way me in. He just wanted to make sure that he got down on the record what happened immediately while it was on his mind. Brunick had reported a series of stories about problems with lethal injection in Alabama, and so Smith had named her as a personal witness to his execution. But she never made it into the viewing room. No one did. Instead, here's what happened, according to what Smith told her in that interview, and his lawyers later laid out in legal briefs. And a warning here that throughout the next 15 minutes or so, there's going to be some graphic descriptions. So Kenny was strapped down to a gurney for, I believe, a total of four hours. Even though he won a stay in the 11th Circuit, he was kept strapped down and not given any information about the course that his litigation was taken. That stay was vacated by the U.S. Supreme Court, and execution workers began trying to set IV lines. He was pierced all over with needles. They... Um, tried, I believe, his wrists, uh, a foot. Once they were unable to set two IV lines, uh, they decided to try to set a central line in Kenny's neck. And so they took a heavy gauge surgical needle, but they missed. So instead of inserting that needle into his subclavian vein, they just shoved it down into soft tissue. The state's death warrant expired at midnight, and with 12 o'clock approaching, the executioners gave up. When Smith talked to Bruning on the phone later, he told her he was unable to pick up his arm. She said the pain lasted for a month afterward. This was the second failed execution in a row in Alabama. What occurred on November 17th was a travesty, but not for the reasons that many death penalty opponents and death row sympathizers would have the public to believe. This is Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall at a press conference last year. It was a travesty of justice not for Kenny Smith, the twice convicted murderer who was scheduled to be executed that day, but it was for Elizabeth Senate and for the members of her family. After the failed execution of Smith, Governor Kay Ivey put a pause on executions and ordered a, quote, top-to-bottom review of the state's death penalty protocol. 
Alabama's review is complete, and next week on July 20th, the state will again attempt to put a man to death, a man named James Barber. So what do Alabama's failed executions say about the future of death by lethal injection? The Atlantic's Elizabeth Brunig has covered Alabama's execution efforts deeply and extensively. She served as a witness at both of those failed attempts, even though, like all other official witnesses, she didn't see much at all. I asked her to describe what was happening to these men's bodies as the state tried to carry out these executions. You know, just think of any time you've had blood drawn. um, And if you've ever had them, you know, fail to get a vein, just imagine that happening upwards of a dozen times. And instead of it just being in what's called the antecubital fossa, which is the inside of your elbow, imagine them starting to try veins all over your body. uh, And that's what's happening to these men. They can't set these lines. They need to set two. Oftentimes they're failing to set even one. What is going wrong here? Is it it that the executioners are not trained, that they don't know what they're doing? Is there a a broader problem? It's, you know, if 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 you set aside whether or not you think the death penalty is a moral thing that should be happening, this is something the state says it's going to do, and it is not able to accomplish this. Yes. It seems to be a problem with the executioners themselves. It's possibly a problem with their training. So little is known about the executioners and the execution procedures because of state privacy protocols, uh, that it's really impossible to have a sense of what training they do have. The state says that they are licensed. Uh, Currently, they say their IV team is made up of two paramedics, an advanced EMT, and a nurse. So that's who's currently on the IV team and is going to have a chance to execute Jimmy Barber. The state throughout the process has been defiant about this. But after the failed execution that we heard about earlier of of Kenneth Smith, the governor, Kay Ivey, did order a pause and an internal review of the state's death penalty protocol. What, if anything, has that found? What, if anything, has changed? So that review was a special one in the history of execution protocol reviews. Other states have reviewed their execution processes and procedures. Oklahoma did and Tennessee did, I think, in 2022. In both cases, those states formed independent commissions to review their execution procedures and processes and issue reports that were eventually made public. In this case, uh, Governor Kay Ivey asked the Department of Corrections to investigate itself um, and issue its findings to her. So there was nothing independent, there was nothing third party, there was nothing external, and there was nothing public about this review. So what's known about it is, is very little. Uh, at the conclusion of this uh, review, which began in November of 2022 and ended in late February of 2023, uh, Commissioner of the DOC, John Hamm, sent a letter to Kay Ivey. Uh, and what he basically said was, thank you for changing the rules so that instead of having only 24 hours for the execution of a death warrant, now... When they run into uh, midnight, they can just keep on piercing because they have until 6 a.m. He also said they've done more rehearsals, uh, that they've added new medical personnel and a new new equipment. Uh, It was later found in a discovery process with Barber's team, I believe, that that new equipment amounted to gurney straps on the gurney. 
So I just want to underscore this. There's been no public report. There were no public hearings. Um, there's little, if any, public evidence of what this review found. This is this is entirely on context clues. Right. Context clues and what's been turned up through litigation. You mentioned Barber. James Barber is, as of this moment, scheduled to be put to death on July 20th. That's next week. Uh, what is the background on his case? Yes. James Barber beat to death Dottie Epps, who was a very elderly woman in Alabama with a claw hammer. He was extremely intoxicated on crack cocaine. He was also drunk uh, and had been using prescription pain pills at the time. So just very inebriated, very intoxicated. Since then has been extremely remorseful, uh, has a clean record in prison, um, and has been in touch with his victim's granddaughter, Sarah, who has developed a strong relationship with Jimmy and has forgiven him. Mm -hmm. Um, And so Jimmy is at peace now, I'd say more so than other guys I've worked with. He's sort of, um, you know, comforting his, his attorneys and people who are working with him. You have mentioned several times the state's general response to all of this, but I just want to talk about that for a moment. Alabama Attorney General Steve Marshall spoke last year about his state's ability to carry out executions. He blamed the two failed executions on inmates themselves and their legal strategy of trying to, quote, run out the clock. And he dismissed Smith's allegations of torture. The cold-blooded convicted killer complains about the prodding and poking of a small IV line. Really? Let's consider the awful irony of Smith's complaints. He is the monster convicted of the murder of a woman who was stabbed 10 times with a six-inch survival knife. He goes on to describe in detail the murder itself, and I'm wondering what your response is. Well, I mean, the fact that it's not been proven that it was Kinney who stabbed her notwithstanding, I don't think that the law holds that we are going to do whatever a prisoner did to them. Right. I mean, I think a lot of people feel like there would be a great symmetry in that and just repeating a perpetrator's crime upon them. There's also a a great barbarism in that, in that you actually become a perpetrator of a crime in that situation. And so I I disagree with Marshall um, that a person's Eighth Amendment rights not to be cruelly and unusually punished don't matter uh, based on their crime. And obviously... A man's life is, is in the balance here, but, but what else is at stake as, as Alabama tries this again? Well, if Alabama can successfully execute Jimmy Barber, they're going to take that to the courts and try to use it as evidence that it's just business as usual and that this string of three botched executions requires no more attention in future litigation. Elizabeth Runig is a staff writer at The Atlantic, and her coverage of Alabama's lethal injections was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. Thanks so much for talking to us. Thanks so much for having me on. I'll note here, NPR reached out for interviews with the governor of Alabama and the state's prison commissioner and the attorney general all declined. Marshall's office said, quote, while the AG would like to discuss the heinous crimes committed by Mr. Barber and why he deserves to die, he is unable to because litigation is ongoing. Are Alabama's problems with lethal injection an exception or the rule? Deborah Denno is a death penalty expert at Fordham Law School, and she studied lethal injection and joins me now. Hey there. Hi. So let's just start right there. How widespread are problems like the ones we saw in Alabama last year? 
I think Alabama is the rule. It's really not the exception. I mean, lethal injection started in this country in 1982. And from the very start, there were botched executions. I think they've gotten even worse after uh, drug shortages in 2009 and 2010. Uh, so Alabama is just representative of a number of other states. I mean, I feel like the the outsider oversimplified question about all of this is that, you know, on paper, people are really just setting IV lines, right? This is something hospital workers do every single day. Why do prison systems struggle to do this? I mean, it's really the million dollar question, isn't it? And there's several reasons. I mean, first of all, this is not a procedure that's taking place in a hospital. It's taking place in a prison setting with all the constraints associated with that. You know, you can't see, you don't have the kind of equipment that you would have in a hospital. And number two, you certainly don't have the experienced people who would be conducting these procedures. And number three, the, you know, the inmates who are being injected are, many of them have drug abuse problems or they're they're very frightened or they're extra muscular they have physical challenges that uh that just add to this component yeah i guess why keep using it then the 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 method of execution has changed many 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 times over the course of human history over the course of u.s history why stick to lethal injection when it's so fraught well there are two main answers to that question i mean number one if a state tries to change to another method of execution, it's a concession that lethal injection in that state is problematic. In other words, the state is basically saying we have a problem. And states don't want to do that. It jeopardizes their ability to uh, enforce the death penalty and to continue on with executions. And it makes them look incompetent, even though we know they're incompetent. The second reason uh, that comes up particularly problematic with lethal injection injection is where else do you go? You know, lethal injection is, you know, number number six in the methods of executions that have been used in this country. Mm -hmm. And uh, where else are you going to go? I mean, in your opinion, is there a method of execution that does not amount to cruel and unusual punishment? I think of all the methods of execution that we have used in this country and that that are on the books, at least one state is a firing squad. Um, There's no question that uh, that's a method of execution that's certain. uh, Death is quick or as quick as it can be. Um, We know it's probably as painless as it can be. And uh, it's just a question of using it. I mean, ironically, firing squad is associated with the Wild West in this country and with barbarity, but it's uh, certainly more, far more humane than lethal injection. That's Deborah Denno of Fordham Law School. Thanks so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Most Americans, 85%, say they can swim, according to survey data from the American Red Cross. But can they swim well enough to save themselves? Maybe not. The Red Cross has a list of five basic water safety and swimming skills that can prevent drowning. And only a little over half of survey respondents said they could do all five. 
Mariel Seguera, the host of NPR's Life Kit, is going to walk us through those skills now with the help of an Olympic swimmer. Yes, I am getting an assist today from Colin Jones, who actually nearly drowned when he was five. At the age of five, I nearly drowned. It took me five different teachers until I started feeling comfortable with the water. He went on to swim in two Olympics, winning four medals, and he's the first African-American to hold a swimming world record. Now it's his mission to make sure people know how to swim well. We really need to change this thought of swimming is just a, a great sport, which it is. It's also a life skill. Okay, about those five survival swimming skills. The first one on the Red Cross's list, you should be able to submerge yourself underwater that's over your head to be comfortable enough to do that, but also to know how to do it safely, whether you're stepping in or jumping in. If you are jumping, you need to be very careful. And it's important to understand the depth of the water, whether you're entering a pool, a lake, or the ocean. You see people jumping off rocks. You see people jumping off all of these different platforms. We have seen people become uh, unbelievably injured from that. Skill number two, you should be able to return to the surface and float or tread water for one minute. You can do that by sculling. That's where you move your arms and legs back and forth to stay above water. In a swim lesson, you would learn how to scull in a way that conserves energy. One of the biggest things about, you know, treading water and also floating um, is taking in a deep breath. When you take in that deep breath, your lungs at that point essentially become a buoy. That's a helpful trick when you need a break from sculling. The third skill is to be able to turn around in a full circle and find an exit. And the fourth is to swim 25 yards to that exit without stopping. If you're like me and can't picture a yard, standard pools in the U.S. are 25 yards long. So the pool that you're thinking of in your head, that's probably a 25-yard pool. Lastly, you should be able to get out of the water without using a ladder. I have a three-year-old, and I yell it to him every time he tries to get out now that he's really good at it. But it's elbow, elbow, tummy, knee, knee. Elbow, elbow. So you're putting your both of your elbows up on the surface, lifting yourself up to your stomach so you're halfway out. And then you're trying to bring your knee up, one knee up, and then the other knee up, and then you should be able to stand up at that point. If you don't have these skills, why not sign up for a swim lesson? You can go to usaswimming.org forward slash make a splash and search for lessons using your zip code. And you can, for some people, get those lessons for low cost or no cost. It's just about doing the research and finding um, what your local pool is providing. On day one of lessons, you might want to bring goggles, a swim cap, or a nose clip if one of your big concerns is water going up your nose. And of course, that cute bathing suit. Where'd you get it, by the way? Also, try to have fun during the lessons and think about all the cool things you'll get to do once you're a confident swimmer. Water aerobics, surf lessons, splashing around with your kid. It's worth taking the time. For NPR News, I'm Marielle Segarra. For more tips from LifeKit, go to npr.org slash LifeKit. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Glad you're with us on this Saturday. I'm Susan Levy. 
We want to make sure you know that there is more Weekend Edition tomorrow morning right here on 90.9 WBUR, including the local economic impact of blockbuster concerts like Taylor Swift and Janet Jackson, plus the Sunday Puzzle, all that, and wait, wait at 10 tomorrow morning on WBUR. Start your Sunday with us. We occasionally offer you the opportunity to win prizes in conjunction with our fundraising efforts. A pledge is not required. Employees and associated sweepstakes entities are not eligible for any drawings or contests. For complete rules, go to WBUR.org. Coming up at 6, another hour of the Moth Radio Hour. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Evita at ART. Experience the groundbreaking revival of the Tony Award-winning rock opera, don't keep your distance. Now through July 30th, amrep.org. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. South Korea's president is in Kiev today to meet Ukraine's president. It's his first visit to the country since the war began. Seoul hasn't sent weapons but has provided humanitarian and financial support and has joined international sanctions against Russia. The Airline Pilots Association says United Pilots have reached a preliminary four-year labor agreement with the airline that includes raises of as much as 40 percent over the contract. It ends months of tense talks and protests amid the post-pandemic travel boom. And Marquetta Vondrosa is Wimbledon's first unseeded female champion after beating Ons Jabur 6-4-6-4 in the final. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed. Indeed is committed to helping businesses of any size attract, interview, and hire candidates all in one place. More at Indeed.com slash NPR. From the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. It's Saturday evening, not Saturday morning, but we're going to end the show by talking about cartoons. And maybe it's best this isn't Saturday morning because cartoons aren't just for kids. That's certainly how the creators of the hit show Bluey see things, and we'll get to that family of Australian healers in a few minutes. And it is absolutely not how Hayao Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli view animation. The 82-year-old Japanese animation artist and the studio he co-founded have towered over the art form in recent decades. And his latest film, How Do You Live, which came out this week in Japan, is his last. Yeah, yeah, he said that before, but this time Miyazaki says he means it. And if you're thinking that Miyazaki and Ghibli Studios are the equivalent of a Japanese Disney, think again. Miyazaki films don't shy away from prickly or even disturbing topics like war, political strife, and complex social issues. This war is terrible. They've bombed from the southern coast to the northern border. It's only flames now. You won't see much that's in line with a classic Disney princess. He won't give you the totally evil villain or the totally good princess figure. He's saying, no, you know, we all have a little bit of of darkness and light inside us, and that's really crucial to his message. I spoke about Miyazaki and his legacy with Susan Napier. She's a professor of international literary and cultural studies at Tufts University in the Japanese program, and she's the author of Miyazaki World, A Life in Art. 
I asked her what was the studio's first breakout hit. The studio's really big turning point came in 1997 with a movie called Princess Mononoke. The wolves are coming! It's the wolf princess! I think about what an extraordinary moment that was, not just for Studio Ghibli, but for animation, the reputation of animation just in general. Why is that? First of all, it's very long, which is not your typical animation feature. It's epic. It sort of takes off of, of the kind of epic movies like Kurosawa's Seven Samurai. It's violent, speaking of samurai, and it's set in the uh, 15th century, so that's a, a long time ago. It, it's historic. In ancient times, a land lay covered in forests, where from ages long past dwelt the spirits of the gods. But it's also f fantastic. It's sort of playing with That's history it. and fantasy Man. and giving a whole new view of history, which includes marginalized people, oppressed people, and women in very strong and important roles. Yeah. Milady took this mountain away from the gods, the boys, and the beasts. And now that it's worth something, you want it. Well, you won't get it. That's a good movie to kind of get to this next point on because mm -hmm. I think when so many people think about animation, their brain immediately shorthands it to children's movies, right? And I think sure. even though in the U.S., Disney makes nuanced, sometimes complicated emotional films, especially the Pixar films, they are often made starting with an audience for children. And is that how Miyazaki thinks of these movies, or is he making movies for audiences and they happen to be animated? That's a really important question. I think early on he was basically aiming for children. But again, with Princess Mononoke, he really decided that he wanted to create a film that would you know, go across all generations, that this was a film that was really, in many ways, a very adult film because it deals with very adult themes about environmental devastation, about uh, technology and, and the terrible allure and the terrible, awful things that... that uh, technology can do and all these contradictions. When I came here last a few years back, this was a lovely little village. But then there must have been a flood or, or a landslide or a fire. The only sure thing is that everybody's dead. These days, there are angry ghosts all around us, dead from wars, sickness, starvation, and nobody cares. So you say you're under a curse? Well, so what? So's the whole damn world. And so he's not necessarily thinking that the average child is going to grasp that immediately. Mm -hmm. And initially he said, well, maybe even children shouldn't see it. But then being Miyazaki, and he can be very contradictory, he said, well, no, actually they should see it because I'm trying to get children around the world to kind of start thinking about these complex questions. Yeah. And Spirited Away, which was fair to say the international breakthrough, it won an Academy Award. It's made a tremendous amount of money and been seen by millions and millions of people. And, and I think really with a lot of U.S animators as well that also gets into some of these complicated plot lines and and kind of sometimes scary dynamics for kids to deal with. Oh, <laughs> yeah. I teach a course on, on Studio Ghibli in, in comparison to Disney. And it's very interesting. The students, you know, come in often because they really love Miyazaki, but they will admit that Spirited Away scared the heck out of them when they were little kids. <laughs>
but they also realized they were seeing something really different. Yeah. And um, Spirited Away is a lot about consumption and our, our materialist society where we just, as early on, the father in the film says to his daughter who's worried that her parents are eating freely at a restaurant without having anyone else there and no idea whether they're, how they're going to pay. And he says, oh, it's okay, I've got cash and credit cards. And the whole credit card world in which, you know, it's okay, I can make it out of absolute pig of myself and it doesn't matter because I've got money. Look, it's real gold. There's a new guest here who's loaded. He's giving gold away by the handful. Just keep the food coming. I want to eat everything. You know, he's not trying to say that, you know, not talking about good versus evil. That's a really important key to understanding Miyazaki and Studio Ghibli. It's a world in which you have light and darkness sometimes embodied in, in the same character. But if we're having this conversation about this animator's legacy, what should anybody listening, what do they need to know about Miyazaki and why he matters in the field of animation? and the field of filmmaking as a whole. So he's, he's showing us that animation can create a very complex world that I think because it's animated and it's therefore arm's length and because it's often fantastical, you know, it sort of has, you know, unreal countries or supernatural figures, I think we can, it helps us deal with our problems in a way that is actually very helpful. It helps us process the things we fear, the thing, the anxieties that kind of hide beneath the surface uh, in a way that a realistic movie couldn't do. I just felt like I'd lost my ability. That sounds like me. It's exactly the same. But then I found the answer. You see, I hadn't figured out what or why I wanted to paint. I had to discover my own style. When you fly, you rely on what's inside of you, don't you? Uh-huh. We fly with our spirit. Trusting your spirit, yes, yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. That same spirit is what makes me paint and makes your friend bake. But we each need to find our own inspiration, Kiki. Sometimes it's not easy. And uh, Studio Ghibli and Miyazaki just don't give us the happily ever after very often. They want to show that the world is, you know, doesn't necessarily go in one obvious direction, that there are many possibilities out there. That was Susan Napier, a professor at Tufts University and the author of Miyazaki World, A Life in Art. Thanks so much. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Now from Japanese animation to Australian. It's Wednesday night, it's coming up on bedtime, and four-year-old Jonah Tagani is excited. Yes, 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 yes. Because Wednesday is when a brand new batch of episodes of the animated Australian kids show Bluey dropped on Disney+. Plus. Turn it on. It's been about a year since U.S. viewers last heard from Bluey, her sister Bingo, and her parents Bandit and Chili. Jonah's parents, Ahmed and Jennifer, are pumped too. And that confuses Jonah. Jonah, do you think Bluey is for kids or for parents? Bluey's actually for kids, man. And why do you think Bluey's for kids and not for parents? Because he's so small. But it's true. Parents love Bluey. I will admit, I have an entire text chain with old high school friends where all we do is talk about this family of cartoon dogs. When NPR spoke to the show's creator, Joe Brum, last year, he told us it's supposed to speak to parents. I really just wanted to show that parents would enjoy watching with their kids rather than you just sort of tolerate it because I thought that that must be a really great experience for for a young kid, you know, a four-year-old, a five-year-old, to be sitting on a couch laughing 
together with their parents at their favorite show. It's so far beyond tolerating, though. Many parents say they pick up parenting tips from Bluey. So we got some parents together to talk about it. I'm joined by Linda McGee of the Chicago area. Hey, Linda. Hi. How old are your kids? Um, so my son is five. He turned six in December, and my daughter is four. Okay. And and Joseph Peterson of Frederick, Maryland, what about you? How old are your kids? Hi, uh, Scott. My son just turned eight. Eight. All right. And Mari Briscoe of New Orleans, how about you? Hi. My daughter just turned 10 months. 10 months. Not quite in the full bluey face yet, but but Linda... <laughs> not fully there. Not, not fully there. Soon enough. Yeah, that's right. Linda, uh, I feel like your kids are probably prime bluey age and actually almost the same ages as Bingo and Bluey. How did you become a fan too? One day, my daughter was like, "Mommy, I want you to come and dance the mommy part of Bluey with me." <laughs> so she tried to incorporate me into the theme song, and then one day, I kind of just sat down, like I was taking a break. And I started, I was very engaged. The storytelling is really, really captivating. It is. So Joseph, Joseph, what about you? Is there uh, an episode that sticks out in your mind as the first time you found yourself drawn in? Uh, Yeah, for me, I think that episode is Sleepy Time. Now, Sleepy Time. It's just so heartwarming and empathetic, I think, both for... The difficulty it is for children, um, it really sees them in kind of um, the struggles to stay in their own bed at night. Ah! Oh, Bluey. Can I have a drink of water? Okay, honey. And also it's really empathetic towards the parents' point of view, right? What that struggle can mean going back and forth from bedroom to bedroom to the bathroom, you know, to sharing space on the bed or on the floor. I have to go. I'm a big girl now. Remember, I'll always be here for you, even if you can't see me, because I love you. Mari, you mentioned your daughter is just 10 months old at this point. So what drew you to Bluey? Why are you already uh, having this on your radar and enjoying it so much? Well, I wanted to have some background noise on that wasn't the TV that, you know, me and her dad were watching. Like, you know, she doesn't need to listen to Severance or Succession or anything like that. (laughs) And then me and her dad were just stuck watching it for like about 10 episodes. I was like, oh, my God, you know, she's drifted away, you know, to sleep. And I'm like, and we're still here watching this. You're there. Yeah. When I think of Bluey and when I talk about it with my parent friends and and I should say I've got a five-year-old and a one-year-old. You know, there's the entertainment and there's the emotional heartstrings pulling, but there's also moments where I find myself taking cues from these cartoon dogs in Australia on how to be a better dad. <laughs> uh, Linda, uh, any 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 particular moments that that you think about? I think it's the xylophone one. Yeah. The magic xylophone. Give me that xylophone. Give me that. They have a xylophone here, and. They do the freeze, and then they unfreeze you, and then they freeze you. So it's taught me to really just play along and just tap into my childlike innocence and sense of wonder. There's so many things that I've done that I probably would never do if I weren't. <laughs> if I wasn't watching Bluey, I probably would not be like a horsey ride or like <laughs> a car driving to the grocery store for some reason. M- Mari, it's, it's, it's still early days for you, but are, are there moments where you've thought like, oh, okay. I see this as a good parenting note, and I'm going to file this away for for when there's more playtime in my life. Oh, absolutely. Um, She just started to crawl, so now we're really into, you know, chasing after her and, you know, keeping her engaged in a lot of different things. Have you you seen the Baby Race episode yet? 
Yes, I have. Oh, man, that, that's probably really relevant to your life right now. <laughs> Absolutely, because um, so my daughter was born um, eight weeks early. So I've always worried, you know, in the back of my head, like, oh, my God, is she hitting the right milestones at this age and everything? The doctor said there was nothing to worry about. Some babies just roll before they crawl. <laughs> but I wasn't having that. And, you know, even watching that episode, it's like, you know, it's okay. You know, she's going to crawl when she crawls. She's going to talk when she talks. How about you, Joseph? Yeah, I think for me, Linda hit hit it with um, just getting tips on how to sort of get down at the carpet level and play, which I think Bandit does just effortlessly. And, you know, in a way that, like, I, I look up to this cartoon character a lot for those reasons, but but also kind of resent him because it feels so unattainable <laughs> oh, yeah. in the way that he can just fully <laughs> commit to a bit. Yeah, I feel like it puts me under a lot of pressure it's unattainable, but it does help. It like pushes you out of the boundary of I need to be doing this at this time to, okay, let's just chill. Like I'm jealous of Bandit, but I think he helps me a lot. <laughs> I will say that. <laughs> Mari, are, are there any particular episodes to you that you feel like really speak to like real life issues? Because I know that's another dynamic that a lot of us appreciate about Bluey, that whether it's a wink here and there or more of a plot line, they get to some of the more complicated and some of the sadder parts of life. Absolutely. So there's this episode, Granddad, which really stood out to me. Um, at the end of it, I was just sobbing on the couch. Um, so Granddad needs to have um, heartworm surgery. He has heartworms or something like that. And, you know, Granddad's supposed to be resting, but, you know, instead he takes the grandkids, you know, through the through the yard and everything, playing around. And Chili's just sitting there yelling at him like, no, you need to rest, calm down. You're not meant to be running around. And it really stood out to me because my dad um, is having a triple bypass this week, actually. And, you know, he adores his granddaughter, loves playing with her and everything. And we've been telling him, like, hey, you need to sit down, rest. Pretty much just as, you know, Chili was speaking to granddad. And she says, you know, I need you to rest because I still need you. And, you know, that really hit me because, you know, even as parents, we were kids once. So we Mm -hmm. still need our parents sometimes. I remember when you used to take me swimming here. Yeah, me too. That was a long time ago. No, it was yesterday. Well, this is this has been a wonderful conversation. Um, thank you to all three of you for for talking about Bluey with me. That was Joseph Peterson of Frederick, Maryland, uh, Mari Briscoe of New Orleans, and Linda McGee of Chicago. Thanks so much to all of you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. 